And then on the flip side, is there any moment that's heartbreaking that pains you to think about? I can't imagine being on the other side of, I can't imagine being Tyron Woodley's opponents, right? And what that feeling might be like following the, the ring announcements or getting knocked out. I'll say this, I'll start with this one. My very first fight in the UFC, I fought BJ Penn. And BJ isn't what he is today. Like now, if you say I fought BJ Penn, they're like, oh my goodness, you fought BJ. But back then BJ was just like some jujitsu kid from Hawaii. Well, he knocked me out. And I remember being depressed <laughs> for like three months. Like, I mean, it was it was awful, you know, like to get knocked out, like to, and people don't understand this, to lose a fight is a big deal. And sometimes, you know, if you look on the internet and people are making fun of people, they get knocked out and it's easy to make fun of them, but you have no idea what that's like to invest your entire being into something it's like it's like taking all your money out of the bank and then getting robbed that's what it feels like because like you invested you know three or four months two three four months into a training camp you know you had a lot of people on your side behind you and then you know you go to the fight and you want to do good you want to you expect yourself to do good you put these expectations on yourself and then other people putting expectations on you and you want to make them proud and then you get knocked out and you're like oh man it couldn't be any worse so when I got knocked out by BJ, I was like, oh, this is terrible. Like I didn't, I didn't want to, I felt like just crawling under a rock and never coming out because I, it was, I didn't want to face people. I was like, how can I face people? Like everybody knows how hard I train and it's, and they're going to think it's all for nothing. Hmm. How can I face people? So it was, it was a miserable three months, but I got over it. But now, so like as a competitor, that was the moment, but now as a fighter or as a coach rather, you know, I feel it when my fighters lose, and, and that's, it's really, like, for the same reasons, you know, like, cause when I see them work really hard, like, I've seen fighters work really hard, and, you know, it's easy to say, oh, you deserve to win, but, you know, every, if you get in there, you know, anybody can win, and everybody can deserve to win, but only one person's going to win, and when you work with somebody, and they work so hard, and they lose, you're just like, I don't know what to say to them, like, it's really, it hurts, so that's, and I hate that feeling, like, sometimes I don't, I don't want to be in that, to have that feeling, but you know what? The one thing I do know in this world is that if you want to grow as a human being, you got to be out of your comfort zone. And that's one of the ways I get out of my comfort zone is I deal with that. I deal with that loss when my fighters lose. And it's hard for me, but for me, it's how I grow. I think it's so cool that uh, people like yourself are willing to put yourself out on this huge public stage where not only are people actually live watching you fight, but it's being recorded. There's there's a record of this. Everyone's commenting on it now more than ever. You have a lot to risk. You have your ego. You have money. Oh you have. It's it. terrible. Yeah, I mean, your health for one. Like that's obviously things. <laughs> like I said, telling I got a, a fighter now who's actually staying here, Hannah Goldie, and I just I tell I had to remind her today. Our number one priority is to take care of yourself. Like your health. Like you got to take care of yourself. Like you can't you know, be so aggressive at the expense of taking care of yourself. So like, that's the number one thing. So like, yes, you're right. But sometimes people go, oh, you got nothing to lose. Yes, you do. You can lose your teeth and you know, mm -hmm. you can get clocked in the head and never recover. So it's a dangerous game. So yeah, you could, you're risking your health and you know, a lot of money, a lot of investment, a lot of time, like a lot of fighters now, you know, the they use their prime years. Like when, when they're, you know, classmates are going to college and getting degrees and you know, getting jobs you know these guys are in gyms fighting and sweating and getting ringworm and mm -hmm. you know and they do that for 
10, 15 years, by the time they're done, they got no skills. They got no life skills. They got no real skills to transfer over into the, to the work world. So not only are they risking their health, they're risking good, valuable years to learn new trades. They're risking a lot of money because it costs money to do this. And their ego, like that's even like, you know, every male wants to be an alpha male. And you know, you're risking this in front of the world. It's just, it's really, it's really difficult. Something difficult to, to kind of wrap your mind around. But talk about being out of your comfort zone. Like it, there's no more truthful place than being in the world of MMA where you're locked in a cage with another human being with nothing, virtually naked fighting. It's, it's, it's a real thing. Um, I got a quick story about that with, uh, you know, Greg Hardy. I trained Greg Hardy and he's a football player. He's a pro bowler, played for the Cowboys and the Panthers. And, you know, one of the you know best football players of his, you know, his time from the, in that position. And he goes out into his first UFC fight. And I'm thinking, oh man, he's, man, this guy's a pro bowler. This guy's done everything, you know, he, but it's different. You know, he didn't have, you know, a 53-man roster to help support him. He's not wearing a helmet. He's standing in the middle of a cage, no shirt on, just shorts and, a, and gloves. And I felt him, I felt his energy. His energy was like a little a little weird. Like he wasn't used to that. So for anybody out there listening, like you, you know, give credit. Like if you see some guys in the UFC fighting, give them credit because there's no place on earth that will reveal your vulnerability than inside of a cage with another person trying to kill you. So so on that note, what are the biggest misconceptions people have about you or someone in your position? I think a lot of people might think, I don't know, I think a lot of people might think that we make a lot of money. <laughs> but, and we and we don't, you know, I'm, I'm not starving, but at the same time, I look at like some of these, I look at like what other coaches make in like other sports and I'm like, oh my God. Like when they talk about like these football coaches, they make you know millions and millions of dollars. I'm like, oh my god, it's crazy. But in in our in our sport, you know the fighters are struggling, and it just kind of trickles down to everybody else. And that's one thing that I think is kind of overlooked is that we, they always look at the fighters, and the fighters are like, oh man, we need more money, we need more money. But you know, there's a lot of people working with these fighters that have to also eat that loss. You know, so sometimes I'm working with guys and, and again, I'm doing it for the kindness of my heart because I want to see them do well. But mm -hmm. sometimes I have to eat it. I eat a loss. Like I've been, I've been to fights where with fighters and I had to buy my own hotel room. It's not, it's not the most luxurious life, but that's not why I do it. Yeah, I think that's definitely one of the biggest misconceptions, like you said. When you, when you see it from the the pay-per-view perspective because the UFC is glamorous no doubt about that like the UFC their production value and it's glamorous and you know then they'll do like some of the shows and they'll show some of the fighters and some of the fighters are doing well you know there's no doubt about that some of the fighters are doing well so they'll show some of that but the majority of them 90 percent of them are not doing that and uh and I think a lot of people get that misconception I remember when I first this was years ago but I think 2005 when I first opened up my my American top team affiliate. I opened it up in, in Port St. Lucie, Florida, and I moved because I grew up there. So I moved back to Port St. Lucie to open up a school. And I remember the people there thinking that like, oh, he's coming back. He must be rich. He must have a lot of money. And I opened up this like 600 square foot facility that I like somebody donated mats to me. And, you know, I'm driving this beat up Toyota Corolla and they're like, whoa, 
what is going on? I'm like, man, this is my life. Yeah, I'm people like, don't see that, especially now with Instagram and people really only showing the highlight reel of their life. They don't show yeah. the cars that they used to drive or anything like that. Then I have only two more questions. Can you teach us something in the next four minutes? And then the second question is, what advice would you give your younger self? Can I teach you something in the next four minutes about uh, fighting? Anything you want, anything that's interesting to you. It doesn't have to be fighting, doesn't have to be about anything you want. Okay, I will teach you something in the next like 30 seconds. So, yeah. and this has to do with fighting. In any given fight, because I study this all day long, in any given fight, pro there's a good chance they're gonna throw the right hand. So, and they're gonna throw it big and wide. So make sure you bring your left hand up and almost like answering the phone, put your hand over your over your head like you're answering the phone so that you can protect yourself when they do that. And then you want to come back with your right hand, but straight down the center like an arrow. You want to shoot it like an arrow right to the person's chin. And this way, you're going to catch it. The one shot, the big overhand right that they throw, then you come back with your own straight down the center hit them on the chin because that's like a light switch it, it's it's a button if you hit a person on the chin it's like a light switch no one can take it if you hit them on the head you know they can probably take that but if you hit them on the chin no one can take that so in order to defend yourself they're going to throw the big right hand you catch it come back with your own right hand right on the chin it seems like people just get touched a little bit or sometimes absorb a ton of damage and they still are standing but then other times you you see like anderson silva right when he fought chris, chris weidman it seemed like anyone could have taken that shot or he's taken so many harder shots than that. Why, what, what was it about that one? It's it's something about the chin where it rattles your brain. If it hits you in the chin at the right angle, it causes your brain to shake. And once that happens, your body's trying to protect itself. So it just goes to sleep. If a person's head is up, and this is, you'll see this a lot in street fights, like, you know, our instincts tell us to be bigger. So people raise up and they raise their head up. And that's the worst thing you can do. You want to keep your head down, keep your chin down and protect it. Because if the head is up and somebody hits that chin, your lights are going out. So yeah. always keep your chin down. You actually want to get smaller in a, series, in, a, in a confrontation and close off any target areas, sensitive areas to being hit. So always keep your chin down. And if somebody brings their chin up, Hit them on the chin. That's a, that's a new one, but I love it. Um, okay, and where can people find you? Where can people find out more about you, about your, your new endeavors? You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Dean Thomas, all one word, just D-I-N-T-H-O-M-A-S. And I love reaching back out to people. They write and ask me questions and I just, I write them back and I get like, I can't believe you wrote me back. I'm like, why not? That's what I do. Okay, well that, does it. I want to thank our guest, Dean Thomas, for his time. Dean, is there anything you wanted to uh, to mention? I just want to remind people to definitely check out Dana White looking for a fight. Dana White, Matt, Sarah, and myself will be going around the world looking for, you know, uh, looking for talent. And we were filming Looking Forward to a Fight, where we actually promote the up upcoming shows. So they're on YouTube. Look, Check those out. Dana White looking for a fight or looking forward to a fight. Definitely check those out and uh, tweet about them if you like them.
Hello, and thank you for joining us for another episode of Connections Cafe, a show where top performers working in unique and interesting professions reveal the secrets to their success. Today on the show, we have Dean Thomas. Dean is a retired MMA fighter. He is also an entrepreneur, and most recently, he is one of the stars on Looking for a Fights TV show with Dana White. So without further ado, here's Dean. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, what you do? Um, I don't know. Like you say, what do I do? <laughs> uh, by trade and how I make a living is I'm an MMA coach and I coach fighters on on how to beat people up. Essentially, it's kind of my goal. You know, just to me, it's more like more like chess, playing chess. But um, but yeah, that's what I do. I, I'm an MMA coach and I teach people how to beat people up. That sounds like fun. So yeah. what? How did, how did you get into this? What's uh, what's your background? How did you how did you start? Can you tell us about your history, where you got your passion from, that kind of stuff? So I grew up uh, I grew up in Florida, and I'm a small guy. You know, in, in Florida, it's like football is a big thing here, like in high school, middle school. And I'm a small guy, and I always wanted to play football, so like that was my thing. But I was so small, and I would always be intimidated by the bigger guys. Just being on a team, trying to be on a team, and just being intimidated and shy and scared and nervous. So it wasn't until I was a senior in high school, because I had kind of given up on sports through high school after a while. I was like, I'm never going to play sports. It wasn't until I got through high school that I was, but I still always had that fear of just like bigger guys and getting beat up in the street. And I just never wanted that to happen. So my sister showed me this video of UFC 2. And I saw Hoist Gracie just run through everybody. Here's this guy who's 170 pounds and he's beating all these guys. He wins this tournament. There's guys in there 300 pounds. And I was like, oh my goodness. I have to learn how to do this. Like, I don't want to get beat up in the street. I don't, World Star didn't exist then, but I'm thinking to myself, like, I don't want to be on a World Star video talking about World Star, me knocked out. So, but that was my thing. And um, so, as soon as I saw it, I thought, like, I gotta learn how to do this. So, like, I just, it was like, like, my life changed the moment I saw it. It's a weird thing because, like, it wasn't a gradual process where I just, like, gradually became interested in it. It was when I saw it. I knew that's what I wanted to do. And the history has been written since that day because I just devoted my entire life towards combat since that day. So if you're curious, go ahead and look at Dean's background, his his combat record. He's fought people like Kenny Florian, Jeremy Stevens, Clay Guida, BJ Penn, Matt Serra, which is actually now, you know, you're part of a show with Matt Serra, right? Yes. Is that awkward? Is that weird? No, no, no. What's weird, like, me and Matt have a lot of history. A lot of people don't know this, but, like, my history, like, Matt is one of the founders of sort of an American jiu-jitsu system. Like, he's one of the first, like, he was one of the first, like, really good American jiu-jitsu guys because he came up under Henzo Gracie back in the late 90s. And, like, at that time, like, nobody was, like, really any good at jiu-jitsu. But Matt always was good. So, and Matt was, like, in the circle. And I, here I am, I'm this, you know, I'm in Florida with uh, my buddy, Paul Rodriguez, you know, from Port St. Lucie, Florida. And, you know, and we, and it seemed like we were like always kind of like competing with these guys. Like Paul had competed against Matt Sarah in uh, the Abu Dhabi trials and he got beat. And then I competed against Matt Sarah's uh, roommate, uh, Rodrigo Gracie at the time. This was, you know, again, late nineties. 
and he broke my arm. So like we had already knew each other. We already had history, but he had just beat me twice. He beat his roommate, or he he beat my roommate. His roommate beat me up, and it was just like, ah. Uh. So then when I got an opportunity to fight him, I was like, oh, I need to fight him. I need to get him back. <laughs> Yeah, so we ended up fighting, I think it was in 2004, maybe 2003, but I think 2004, we ended up fighting and it would end up being a split decision and they announced his name, but they got it wrong. They, one of the judges scored it wrong and accidentally put his name where my name was supposed to go. So I actually won the fight. So like, it was, we always like had this competitive thing with each other. Then after that moment, his people in New York, they used to roast me online. I mean, the internet wasn't what it is today, but it was still, it was still a couple forums and they would roast me on there and I'd try to get them back. So like me and Matt always had this history, but it wasn't until the Ultimate Fighter season four that when we were going to do our medicals for, like we, we rode in the same van together and then we were walking around the mall, like prior to doing, doing our physicals and Matt just goes, hey man, let's talk. And I said, what's up? And then, then we just, what are we beefing over? That's what it was. Like, what are we beefing over? I was like, I don't know. And the next thing I know, we end up being roommates in the house, and now we're like best friends. <laughs> awesome, we, I love we that. We do a show. Yeah, we do a show together. We're like best friends. Like, I would do like literally, I would do anything for Matt. Like, that's my guy. Like, if, if somebody was like trying to mess with Matt, like they got to go through me. That's my guy. Well, I've, I've watched a few episodes, and it it actually looks like you mess with him quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, but I like that. I like that dynamic. Hey, so so what does your day-to-day -day look like? You you coach a lot of people, obviously. You were at American Top Team for a long time, it seemed like. What is your what is, what did your day-to-day -day look like as a as an MMA coach? Well now it's changed significantly because um, I'm no longer working for a team. I'm working for myself and I work with who I want to work with. And but prior to me doing the format that I have now, I worked for a team, so I'd go into work every day and I had certain guys that I worked with and then, you know, and every couple of days, some new guys would come in and I'd have to work with them. And it was just, to me, it didn't make a lot of sense to me because I'm a very systematic and structured type coach in the sense that where I believe in systems and formats and, you know, getting things down and communication and chemistry. I believe in like all these things in order to have good, to have a good relationship with my fighters. And I wasn't getting that from being a top team because it was just such a transient place. Like I, like some, you know, some random guys from like Argentina would come and I'd have to work with them. And it was just like, I couldn't teach them nothing. Like I couldn't develop them. So eventually I just kind of said, you know what? I can branch off on my own. I did it at the worst possible time during a pandemic where like everybody was losing their job and here I go quit mine. Well, it was like poor timing, but um, it worked out for me. So what I ended up doing is, is I, I moved into a bigger place, a bigger house with uh, more bedrooms. And I just said, you know what, whoever I want to work with, I'm just gonna have them come to me. I converted my garage into a workout area. And and ever since, man, I've been able to really dig into my athletes the way I, I like to. And that's to have better communication with them, we study film and they live here or, or either they live here or they stay here a couple of days at, at a time. And we're able to just dedicate our entire day towards combat. And that's studying and drilling and going over positions and going over moves. And, and to me, it's a lot more re rewarding because I think at the end of the day, I'm more of a student than anything. And I like to look at myself as like, I've been doing martial arts as long as like any 
professor or doctor has been doing what they've been doing. So like, I like to think of myself as like that, like a scientist or somebody who's who's studying and trying to create, you know, experiments and things like that. So I spend all my day looking at new positions, trying to find new ways to do things. And now I have people here with me that I can actually achieve that. So to me, this is like just as much for me as it is for them, because I'm able to create and develop new positions and and in return, they get to win fights. So it's great for me. That's really cool. I love that you have like such an entrepreneurial spirit, you know, because a lot of people either grow up in a household where they're taught to find a job and work there until you retire or until they fire you or until you get a better job. But you seem to be going in a completely different direction, what with the fighting and then now with finding students, right? Finding people to actually train and really hone their skills. What would you say is the worst part of your job currently? Um, well, first, first, let me address this. You talk about the entrepreneurial spirit. I will attribute that to my childhood. I've always worked and I taught myself how to cut hair at the age of 13 and ran a barbershop out of my mother's garage all through high school. From, from eighth grade, from the end of my middle school, eighth grade, all through high school, I ran a barbershop in my mother's garage. So I always knew how to hustle and make my own money. So like now it's like not that much different for me to, to be doing this in a sense. So it's almost kind of the same thing. But to answer your question, the hardest part about doing my job is when you're passionate about something, it's, it's almost like a conflict of interest to get paid for. And sometimes I think that I bend over backwards for a lot of people and let a lot of things slide because again, like I'm doing this for me and this is this is my passion. And you know, and sometimes I can undervalue myself and let people get away with doing certain things because I don't place a heavy value on it sometimes. Maybe as much as I should because I love doing what I'm doing. So at the same time that like I love doing what I'm doing, it's 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 such a it's such a blessing. It can also be a curse because I love doing what I'm doing, but people can take advantage of me for that. Yeah, that's very that's very insightful with a note about yourself. And what would you say is the, the coolest part of your job or the coolest part of being in this kind of industry? You know, I think at the end of the day, you know, I'm an empath and I like to help people. So again, like that's part of my curse is that I like to help people. So it's easy for people to take advantage of me. But at the same time, I like to see people be empowered. My cousin, I have a cousin, her name is Vanessa. And, you know, she's a sweet girl. She's been training with me since she was like 15. And I remember the first time I seen her being empowered, you know, she was training jujitsu and I had her rolling with, you know, training with some guy. He was a, he was a cop, he was a probably about 200 pounds and she's like 130 pounds. Mm. And she got behind him and choked him. And I seen a twinkle in her eye, like, I'm somebody, you know, like I saw that empowerment in her. So for me, that's what made me proud. Like it made me proud to be able to help her develop that, that and that confidence. Uh, I have another student, uh, or not, I don't like to consider them students, but I have another fighter of mine, Jillian Robertson. She lives here. Uh, in the same town. She actually don't live in a house with us because she lives in the same town, but, you know, she's been training with me since she was 16 years old as well. And now, you know, I watched her come up and I've worked with her and worked with her. And she's she's fighting in the UFC and holds the record for the most submissions in women's history. So just watching them come up and, 
and do things that they wouldn't be able to do for me. That's like the coolest thing ever because I feel that. I feel it. Is there any one memory that really just kind of stands out above all all the other ones? Any like cool experiences you've had as a result of being so close and so such a part of the fabric of MMA? Well, I think um, one of my proudest moments, really, like, you know, I was a fighter. For, I fought professionally for 15 years, did four years prior to that doing amateur fights. But as a, as a fighter, again, I don't think I was fully fulfilled because I was too close to it. And what I mean by that is it's hard to really, hard to really, like, take a step back and look at the whole game because I'm, I'm in the middle of it. So now as a coach, I can take a step back and look at the whole game and see what's important and see the value and see everything that's going on. And I, that's why I feel like I'm a much, a much better coach than I am fighter because I'm able to look at the, the whole game without a filter of having to compete myself based on the limitations that I had. Now I can work with athletes and get it done. So to answer the question, you know, working with Tyron Woodley, and helping him win the UFC title, that has to be the moment that stood out to me the most because I never won a title. I, I've gotten close, I never won a UFC title. But to have gone through the journey with him and to watch him win that title to me stands out because it felt like it was me winning it as well because I, mm. I was going through it. So um, yeah, I think that moment is probably one of my greater accomplishments.